Attention all civilians. You're listening to TalkZone.com. Internet Talk Radio. TalkZone.com. Now, the Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Larry Robbins Show. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins, where each week we bring you cutting-edge stories and conundrums, issues and problems in medical stories of the week. I'm here with my co-host, Susie Robbins, and we have an exciting show this week with all kinds of interesting topics. We'll plunge in first. There was a new story this week from the FDA issuing a dictum that all vitamins and herbs actually have to be tested and the claims that the companies make have to be proven. Wow, this is a huge difference. Now, the official story read like this. For the first time, manufacturers of vitamins, herbal pills, and other dietary supplements will have to test all of their products' ingredients, the FDA said. Last year, the agency found that some supplements contain undeclared active ingredients used in prescription drugs, and what we have found when uh, organizations such as ConsumerLabs.com tested multivitamins, they find that there are adulterants such as lead in a lot of the vitamins out there. As we've said before, it's buyer beware caveat emptor out there in vitamin and herb land. But hopefully this new dictum from the FDA, the new directive, that the companies actually have to test and prove their claims, and that their supplements are pure uh, will lead to much better standards. And if they don't, if they're found to be adulterated or something else in them, uh, they're subject to very heavy fines or even jail time. You know, the vitamin and herb industry is a 20 to $25 billion, with a B, dollar, dollar industry out there. And uh, what we find as we found this year in multiple studies, is that most of the claims, most of the vitamins and herbs don't do anything, and some are harmful. Some do help, though, particularly vitamin D, which we've harped on in this show before. Vitamin D has found out every week there's a new study showing the benefits of vitamin D, and also omega-3s, which are flaxseed oil, fish oil, uh, and they're coming up with omega-3s and other things. I, I saw last week peanut butter with omega-3s. Over to you, Susie. Any thoughts? You know, at this point in my life, I'm trying to just focus on the vitamins that, from what I've read up on and, and learned from doctors, are most important to take. And at least for me, you know, a woman who's just hit menopause, obviously calcium and vitamin D are very important. And I'm also taking fish oil. You know, to explain, Larry, why is it that um, the fish oil is so important for everybody to take? Well, a fish oil has the omega-3 and omega-6s, and so does flaxseed oil, although there's little differences in fish versus flaxseed. Or you can get the box of flaxseed. Most of the chains now, Walgreens, Osco, etc., have boxes of flaxseed in their supplement section. Uh, which is a ni- nice little nutty, crunchy taste like sesame seeds that uh, goes on cereal or yogurt or something like that. So you don't have to take the capsules. But fish oil capsules, the vast majority, 9 out of 10 of them, are not fishy. They don't leave an aftertaste. Most people tolerate these really well. But they help prevent uh, heart disease and stroke. 
uh, through mechanisms that we're not a million percent sure, and they may help in certain types of cancers. The uh, omega-3s in fish oil, flakes oil, really hold up in all the studies. But this year we've seen vitamin E shot down and a number of other vitamins and herbs. So we really have to look at the long-term studies. And from my standpoint, even multivitamins we talked on last week are not all that terrific. Uh, the only ones that are really proven are the calcium, vitamin D, and the omega-3s. You know, talking uh, about the fish oil, I, I must say that I've been taking it because you've recommended it. What I don't get is why are our fish oil uh, pills in our freezer along with pomegranate pills? Well, that's a good question. In, in heat, uh, omega-3s, fish oil, flaxseed uh, tend to um, become less effective. So for six months out of the year, we're around Chicago. Uh, I'd rather keep them in the freezer. So I keep them there all the time. The disadvantage of keeping pills in the freezer is, A, when the kids look in there, they go, yuck, what are those? And some weird thing that, uh, you know, parents are taking. The other disadvantage is out of sight, out of mind. When they're in the freezer, you tend to forget that they're there and don't take them. If they're along with your other supplements or pills or whatever you take, uh, you're more likely to take them. And the pomegranate, well, that's off on a tangent. You know, I'll read an article uh, even though I know it's buyer beware out there, I'll read an article that blueberry or pomegranate is good. So here and there I do take a pomegranate uh, capsule or blueberry, uh, which I don't think have much downside. On another front, yesterday there was breaking news in the land of medicines. For the first time, a drug was approved for the treatment of fibromyalgia. Now, the drug is Lyrica from Pfizer, L-Y-R-I-C-A, and it's actually a drug that's used for epilepsy or seizures, but most of its use is for pain. It has uh, several pain indications, and we've used it for a number of types of pain. I've used it for headaches. We've used it for nerve-type pain. But fibromyalgia is relatively common illness that can be debilitating. It's basically tenderness and pain in large muscle groups, usually neck, back, arms, legs, Very often, people with fibromyalgia do have daily headaches. They usually have insomnia and chronic fatigue as well. And traditionally, there are not many treatments for this pain. It's not arthritis-type pain, but it's in the muscles. We don't know exactly the cause of fibromyalgia. There's a lot of research that's going on. It may involve the immune system. It may involve other uh, proteins in the bloodstream or in the nerves. But the bottom line is fibromyalgia does debilitate a lot of people. And traditionally, we haven't had great treatments. We try antidepressants and muscle relaxants and pain prevention medicines, such as this Lyrica and physical therapy, exercise, massage, all the non-medicine things too. But many people with fibromyalgia do not get better. Now, the FDA has officially now sanctioned Lyrica for treating fibromyalgia, which means that it'll get paid for in general by most insurance companies. Now, your doctor may use things off-label, such as antidepressants or seizure medicines. It doesn't mean that they're not supposed to be used that way, but uh, off-label just means the company didn't go for an official indication from the FDA. And the reason usually for that is the, the drug may be old, where there's generic versions out, so it's not worth it. It costs 
uh, millions and millions of dollars to go for an indication, actually usually ten, tens of millions of dollars and years of time. Uh, there's other reasons why they don't go for a certain indication. So, But it does help to get the official indication because then it's usually paid for uh, by the various insurance companies. Now, Lyrica can cause tiredness, uh, sometimes dizziness, sometimes a little weight gain or retaining fluid. Sometimes we get a little puffy in the feet, and that's a reason for some people to go off of it. But generally, Lyrica has been a pretty safe medicine. It doesn't have very much in the way of drug in, uh, interactions, and we've liked it from a safety standpoint. As with most medicines, we start low with a low dose and go slow. They have all kinds of doses of Lyrica, 25 milligrams up to 150 milligram capsules. So I usually start it with 25 or 50 at the most. Susie, any thoughts on fibromyalgia? Uh, you know, as you're mentioning this, this is a new, um, or this medicine, Lyrica can, is now being able to be prescribed for patients with uh, fibromyalgia. Because it's off-label, our listeners out there, you know, they're in different states. Are there some states or some areas where some of our listeners who may want to talk to their doctor about it might have a problem um, having this prescribed for them? Well, uh, off-label or on-label is an FDA national United States thing, and each country has their own labeling. So some drugs are on-label or officially approved for an indication in Canada or in uh, England, but not in the United States. But some doctors are more reticent or hesitant to use off-label medications, are a little more cautious, and others aren't. So it depends on the individual doctor. In general, it's been hard to find uh, enough doctors to treat pain, headaches, and fibromyalgia. A lot of doctors don't want to treat people with fibromyalgia because the treatments generally haven't worked all that well. And you can read about, actually, fibromyalgia has a very good um, patient-oriented website and newsletter. It's the best patient uh, news uh, letter that I've seen. It's called FMNet News, and it's out of Arizona, I believe, Fibromyalgia Net News, and you can Google it on the net. Susie? You know, my- I've always tried to understand a little bit more about what exactly fibromyalgia is. And years ago, I had an old college friend come and visit me. When she woke up in the morning, she just had, she was tremendously um, sore, and she actually uh, stretched for about half an hour to just try to get her body ready for the day. And I, you know, still kind of struggle with understanding, you know, what it is that, that people with fibromyalgia go through. Is it a genetic type of, of disorder, or how do people get it? Well, we don't have all the answers on fibromyalgia. The research has lagged behind, for instance, headache research or epilepsy, things like that. But it is somewhat genetic. Uh, there's a lot of moms and daughters who have fibromyalgia, so there's probably a predisposition. We do find in people with fibromyalgia more stresses, abuse, etc., as a child, And stress or abuse as a child, abuse, physical, emotional, um, as a child, does translate into changes in the brain and nervous system as an adult. So we get more depression, anxiety when people have had abuse as a kid or stresses. And we also have more headaches and more fibromyalgia. But people may have anxiety and depression with it, 
but they really, it's not as if it's a psychological made up problem. The underlying things going on in the bloodstream and nervous system with fibromyalgia probably do involve the immune system and the neurotransmitters. Probably the immune system is a little overactive, although that's not altogether proven. They are finding things in the bloodstream and in the spinal fluid in people with fibromyalgia. So they will hone in on uh, what is causing it eventually. At the moment, suffers with fibromyalgia, which again is pain and tenderness in the muscles mostly, with usually insomnia and chronic fatigue. The question is what to do about it. And of course, we don't rely just on medicine. We want to do other things, whether it's exercise, yoga, biofeedback, things like that for chronic pain. Now, turning to the continuing saga of estrogens, should women uh, in menopause take estrogen? It takes twists and turns, and the latest, there's two new studies showing that estrogen, at least before age 60, is relatively safe and may actually help the heart. Now, this is quite a turn from some studies about five years ago that changed everything, where it showed that women on estrogen had a greater incidence of heart problems. This one, at least women age 50 to 60 who took estrogen had significantly less heart disease than women taking placebos. It was a very well done study. And according to the New England Journal of Medicine, when women took their estrogen religiously, the risk was 60% less of heart problems. The researchers feel that this should be very reassuring to women in their 50s who've been taking estrogen for menopausal symptoms. But the issue is, should women take it for their heart or to prevent heart problems? Well, I think that's up in the air at the moment. The answer is no. We use estrogen mostly for menopausal symptoms, hot flashes, insomnia, etc., and not to try to prevent heart problems. But, you know, I've seen this change over 25 years where sometimes menopause was treated, I'd say about 15 years ago, as an illness, even though it's not, it's a stage of life. And some patients, some docs were putting everybody on estrogen, which didn't seem right. Then the pendulum swung too far the other way, where estrogen is bad all of a sudden about five years ago. Everybody go off estrogen, and a lot of women dump their estrogen in the garbage. And their quality of life is much worse off of estrogen uh, not only their skin, but how they feel, their sleeping, hot flashes. And now several studies over the past 6 to 12 months have indicated that at least until age 60, estrogen is safer than we thought. A related study also uh, was done recently, and the International Menopause Society concluded that, quote, the safety of hormone therapy largely depends on age. Women younger than age 60 should not be concerned about the safety profile of hormone therapy. And they concluded that the new data and reanalysis of older studies show that for most women, the benefits of hormone therapy given for a clear indication are many and the risks are few when initiated early in menopause. Now, after age 60, this all may change. Now, Susie, you're in... Um, a category with millions and millions of women who are um, 40s, 50s, early menopause or premenopause, and doesn't it get confusing with this whole estrogen uh, conundrum and questions? I think so. It's It sometimes feels like you're on a seesaw. You're up, then you're down, 
I think it is good that that studies keep coming out and giving us the most up-to-date information, but at the same time, it seems like every time you turn around, it's the same old question of, should I be taking hormone replacement therapy or not? Or what are the odds? Am I better off not taking them or taking them? Uh, I recently w- sought out a second opinion because I was concerned about uh, my pre-osteoporosis and that I am not taking HRTs. However, I am taking a um, uh, medicine called Actinel, which is a medicine that helps build your bones. I know there's a more specific name for those medicines. Anyways, my second opinion, the doctor for my second opinion said, unless you're showing symptoms, you shouldn't go on the hormone um, therapy. But I'm wondering, why do you have to have symptoms to go on it if you think it, if if those therapies can help you long-term with your heart and possibly breast cancer? Well, the issue with breast cancer has always been that hormones may increase the risk of breast cancer, and that may be an age-related effect So, and how long women take hormones for. So we wouldn't take hormones, of course, to prevent breast cancer, but more uh, be a little worried about the increased risk, but it lowers the risk of the heart, it's a complicated issue if you don't have symptoms whether uh, women should go on hormones. But I think that at least for women with menopausal symptoms, which uh, most women do get, uh, at least before age 60, at least around age 50, going on hormones seems to be reasonable for a period of time. And that was not what was thought four or five years ago or even two years ago where most women were avoiding or told to avoid hormones at any cost. Now, there was another pain story in the news, and uh, previously some companies have worked on cannabinoids, which are cannabis-based drugs. There's a system in the brain that's based on the same active ingredient uh, as in marijuana, um, which is uh, a cannabinoid, it's called, and marijuana is cannabis. Uh, but these cannabis-based drugs have some potential in treating pain, in treating maybe depression, and other things. And there's one in Canada that's called Sativex, S-A-T-I-V-E-X, that will be considered for treating cancer pain. It's the first cannabis-based drug that it's not similar to marijuana in its euphoric effects, but is similar in its base, at least its chemical compound, and Canada may consider it as a treatment for cancer pain. I think that whole group of medicines uh, that are based on cannabinoids or cannabis have great potential and should be developed, and I know that they're being developed, at least in other countries, not so actively in the United States. Susie, what do you think about marijuana-based medicines or marijuana for medical purposes? I think it's interesting that with all the medicines, treatments that that have come out, that people still revert to cannabis to help them with their pain. Um, do you think at some point we'll have a national consensus on it? Is it? Isn't it true that in some states, particularly California, you can get a prescription for medicinal marijuana? Yes. Uh, I, I know in California and... Um, uh, maybe another couple states. But the problem is we haven't, we've been inhibited from doing real research. We need real research on how much it helps. A lot of patients tell me that smoking marijuana helps their headaches. 
but we need uh, blinded research. We can't. Uh, we've found out with a lot of medicines that people will say, "Well, this helps this, and that that helps that." And then when it's put to the test in large trials, they don't hold up. So I think that the the government has, in general, frowned upon this research. But that's what we need with anything. We can't just say, "Well, let's use marijuana for nausea or for pain," uh, because a lot of people say that it helps. On the other hand. I don't want to say let's not use it. What we need to do is do the research. And when it's done for legitimate reasons uh, in adults for pain, I think the risk of addiction is remarkably low. The risk of addiction of adults uh, for other addicting things is different than when it's given to adolescents or people around age 20 uh, for other reasons. So we really should look at this, uh, at this um, situation with marijuana. Well, and if it's for end-of-life uh, cancer pain, should there really be a concern if it's addictive or, or not, if it's giving uh, those patients some uh, pain-free time? I think end-of-the-life and cancer pain, uh, definitely there should not be even a thought as far as that. Uh, we should be free to prescribe these things. You've been listening to the Dr. Larry Robbins Show with my co-host, Susie Robbins. I'm a neurologist around Chicago. I treat primarily headaches and pain and a lot of psychological problems such as depression. My co-host, Susie, uh, is a social worker. My website is headachedrugs.com. And you can email us with questions at doclarryrobbins, D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S, at AOL.com or at lrob, L-R-O-B-B 98 at AOL.com. We're going to take a very short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about a number of interesting stories, including antidepressants in heart patients and obese kids during the summer, how they lose all their gains during the year if they don't exercise. So we'll be right back. Stay with us, folks. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. We are back and we're talking about antidepressants in heart patients. Now, this story has come up before where the newer antidepressants, they're not so new now, called SSRIs, which include Prozac, Lexapro, Zoloft, the meds like that, uh, where they help prevent future heart attacks. And this was another study where people who were hospitalized with heart attacks or severe angina who happened to be put on SSRIs ended up with much less recurrence of heart attacks later on down the road. Now, the authors of the study note that apart from relieving depression, these drugs such as Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, the SSRIs, also stop platelets from clumping together uh, in a similar fashion, actually, to aspirin, and they said that the platelet effects of SSRIs may reduce the likelihood of complications, but we may have an increased risk of bleeding out of the stomach in older folks on SSRIs. And that's been noted before, but it's a very minor risk. It is there, but it's a very mild effect, the increased risk of bleeding in people on SSRIs. Now, it's possible that the effect on anxiety and depression that SSRIs have uh, may help the heart as well. Anxiety, depression are not just benign things, quality of life issues. They seriously affect our whole body, 
and uh, they decrease our immune system in response. They make it more likely to get certain problems, infections, etc., and they may more, make it more likely, anxiety and depression, to get heart attacks and strokes, particularly if our blood pressure is up. Susie? You know, I can't help thinking that in general for people who have gone through major heart surgery, such as bypasses, um, that uh, doctors tend to suggest putting those patients on some sort of antidepressant in general because many people do go through uh, a depression of some sort after surgery. Well, absolutely. Uh, landing in the hospital with a heart problem, uh, we're generally talking about middle-aged people, and it's a huge change in their lifestyle. All of a sudden, they see mortality coming up. Many people have not had much in the way of physical problems. All of a sudden, they have a heart attack, or they may be younger. 30, 35, 40-year-old people have heart attacks regularly. And often it does lead to depression, at least anxiety. And seeing a therapist or getting on some medicine can help. The only thing is, whenever we're talking about any medicine, there are side effects. The side effects of the SSRIs, the antidepressants, include tiredness, spaciness. In the beginning, people can be nervous or anxious, weight gain, and the dreaded decreased sexual ability or interest. People generally go off of antidepressants either because of weight gain, tiredness, or decreased sex drive. Now, there's been a lot in the news about obesity in kids and adolescents in this country, in the United States, and a new study showed that a lazy summer vacation for these kids can wipe out all the benefits of school-based fitness programs for obese adolescents. Now, I think that we used to have very little at home to keep us interested. We had, in the old dinosaur days, we had three or four channels on TV instead of 80. We didn't have all the games, and we didn't have Nintendo or anything. We had radio and TV. So in the summer, kids were told, just get out of here and play. So kids were more active. And we naturally think that our kids are going to be just as active in the summer, but they're not. I tell my patients and the kids who are patients all the time, I ask, what are you doing this summer uh, exercise-wise? Because a lot of kids go from exercising in gym and during the school year to doing nada-nothing during the summer. This study concluded that, quote, we in some ways lost all the benefits that the school year had promoted the previous year. Most of us had sort of assumed that summertime would mean less sitting in classrooms and more physical activity, and it didn't work that way. For fitness programs to have a sustained benefit, they must be offered year-round, the researchers concluded, and they said that maybe parents need to be a little bit more cognizant of trying to promote daily activity for our kids instead of being on the computer, watching TV, spending time outside. Susie? Well, you know, I, for some kids, of course, camp is an option, but that can't be an option for everybody because, unfortunately, not everybody can afford it. Uh, you know, one other concern I'm thinking about for parents who work and may live in neighborhoods where they don't want their kids wandering the neighborhoods during the day when they're not home is they may say to their kids, okay, I want you to just stay in the house while I'm at work. And so for a lot of kids, they're feeling like they have to stay in the house from a safety standpoint as well. And it's not so easy to get exercise if you're sitting in the house all day with the TV there. So, you know, I I think also from looking at it from a socioeconomic 
level, it's harder for some kids to get out and get that exercise, whether because their folks can't afford camp or because they're told they need to stay in the house uh, to be safe while mom and dad are at work. Absolutely. And I think that we tell our kids we're all afraid. Uh, we tell our kids stay around. It, you know, in the old days, of course, they said just uh, come home before it's dark and we would wander off and come back eight hours later and we were doing stuff in the neighborhood or eight blocks away. Now people are much more watchful over their kids. And the interesting thing is, is it really a more dangerous world now? I'd love to see really good statistics because I've seen different things on this. Uh, are we just a little more cognizant and because of the datelines and all the shows on TV uh, about predators and kids, is it really a, a more dangerous world about kids being hurt or snatched? You know, I don't know. Back to the camp issue for a minute. You know, I would suggest to anybody out there who would love to send their, their kid to summer camp and feel that they can't afford it, it never hurts to call if you have a local park district or a local Y. Call them up and tell them, hey, I can't afford camp this summer. Are there scholarships? Is there anything I can do to get a waiver so my kid could go maybe for a few weeks? I know in the past years ago I did that uh, when I was a single mom and I wanted my kids to go to summer camp. I couldn't afford it. I called the park district in my own community and I said, you know, this is where I'm at right now. And my kids got to go to camp anyways and uh, because my park district actually had some kind of fund for families who couldn't afford it but requested it. So don't hesitate to make some calls and ask. Yeah, I agree. Most kids like camp. I think that's a great point that um, a lot of people can't afford it, but the park districts do come in very handy. And the way I see camp is it just gets kids out of the house into a different environment. They usually come home, they're happy, they've done something physical. And I remember when my kids would come home from camp exhausted, hot and tired, I didn't mind that they sat down on the couch for a while and watched television knowing that they had been active for four or five hours that day. Uh, on the other hand, camp isn't for all kids. Some kids want to stay with mommy. Uh, some kids are uh, really not athletic at all and are embarrassed for various reasons. But I think that... Um, there's this thing called anxiety or social anxiety, and a lot of kids do have it. It starts very often by age 6 or 8 or 10, and I see those kids staying at home in the summer and not going anywhere, and it can lead to being very anxious as an adult. Also, we try to get kids out, so I think we are in agreement that camp is a good thing. The idea is for kids to move more, same with adults, but even in the summer. Now, on another front, there was an interesting new study of an old issue, how much alcohol is good, how much is bad. And this was a study in women where small amounts of alcohol did help as far as risk for strokes and heart attacks, but getting drunk is not particularly good. This study looked at women who got drunk at least once a month, and it turns out that it greatly increased their heart attack risk. Now, the issue is cause and effect, and in a lot of studies, it may not be what they're looking at. For instance, they're looking at women who get drunk at least once a month, and they may have more heart attacks, but maybe it's not the alcohol. It may be that women who get drunk four or five times a month or get plastered are also smoking cigarettes and not eating well, not exercising, 
It may be a whole lifestyle thing, and that's confused a number of studies in the past. But as usual, mild or moderation is the key. Women who drink as little as one or fewer drinks on days when they did drink had a significantly lower heart uh, attack risk than women who didn't drink at all. So small amounts of alcohol, because it probably thins your blood and may do other things, did help the risk for heart attacks. The idea, of course, is not to overdo it. Same, It's the same message that we give adolescents and kids in college. Binge drinking is huge. We've touched on that in previous shows. But when the kids binge now, it seems to be 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 drinks, which is really binging. Now, Susie, you enjoy a glass of wine with dinner. What do you think? Well, I look forward to it when we go out to a restaurant on a weekend and uh, ordering dinner that I'm going to have that glass of wine. Uh, you know, it's certainly a benefit if it's also, uh, is healthy. And as you said, it's like most things, um, you know, how much you partake, there's a fine line between it being healthy and not being healthy. You know, one other question, when you mentioned about, Larry, um, uh, blood thinning and that may possibly be why, uh, alcohol can be healthy for you, what about people that typically or, uh, three or four times a year donate blood. Is that kind of the same thinking in terms of thinning out your blood? Well, it's interesting you mention that. Too much iron, too much blood is a risk factor. It gives people heart attacks. And uh, it's probably for men and women. I think it's probably been looked at more in men. And people who donate blood probably are at a lower risk. If they keep their blood a little bit towards the lower side, and get rid of some of the iron, it probably lowers our risk somewhat for what we call sludging in the uh, where the blood sort of clumps up, and it lowers our risk. See, the problem is when you and I go out to a restaurant, I usually um, order Coke, you order a glass of wine, I drink your wine, and so I'm not sure you're getting the benefits because I'm always stealing your wine anyways. Yeah, we're big partiers. I have to watch my one glass of wine because you want half of it. There's more ahead after this time out on TalkZone.com. If you're hearing talk on the Internet, you're listening to TalkZone.com. It's showtime. TalkZone.com. Now more of the Dr. Robbins Show with your host, Larry Robbins, MD, on TalkZone.com. Now recently there was another interesting study looking at stressed out moms. The uh, study looked at mothers of young children and the mothers who feel that they lack emotional support or help in caring for their children have more than three times the risk of mental health problems, usually depression, anxiety, compared to mothers who feel adequately supported, a new study showed. And, of course, in our increasingly isolated society where everybody is, quote-unquote, mobile and people can move away from family and extended family, people are more and more isolated. So say somebody has a mobile job and they move across the country and then they have a kid or two, two little kids, but no mom, aunts, cousins, nobody around, I think it leads to problems. Now, mothers of small children, the study says, are known to face a substantial risk of mental health problems, and their mental health has a strong influence on the child's health and development, of course. The study concluded that improving family leave policies and making high-quality child care more affordable and accessible could help ease the stresses on parents identified in the current study. And there was an interesting note 
that I think it's important and helpful to look at stresses that affect the father's mental health also because father's mental health, of course, affects the whole family. And I think in our society where we need two incomes with most families, uh, with kids, it does increase everybody's stress all the way around. Susie, what do you think? You know, I'm thinking about um, last evening, We, you and I watched a show on A&E called Intervention. Maybe some of you out there have heard of it. It shows real-life people who are dealing with a substance problem, and they acknowledge that they're being followed around um, by a television uh, camera, but they do not know that at the end of it, they will be brought in to uh, have an intervention with a therapist and their family members. Last night's show um, dealt with a mom who had a severe drinking problem and whose husband was really keeping the family going. They had th- uh, three kids from uh, 15 down to nine. And it just showed, you know, when one parent has any kind of, this parent was an alcoholic, but any kind of substance problem, what it does to the family dynamics and what it does to um, the psyches of children living in a situation like that. Um, it's just devastating. That is a terrific show, Intervention on A&E. It really, they follow the, the person who's usually addicted to coke, uh, sometimes alcohol, heroin. Sometimes it, it, they've had gambling and bulimia shows. They show the family, but the person living with the addiction, they follow them around with cameras for uh, at least a few months, and then they show the intervention. They toddle off to rehab, and then you see, um, you can almost guess, you know, you try guessing how they're going to do in rehab based on um, how the person is. And by that I say that many alcoholics have uh, several underlying severe psychiatric problems, but not all do, and the less underlying psychiatric problems, the more chance that somebody's going to do better in rehab or stay clean or not leave rehab. But what we see is the devastating effects that addiction takes. I think there's a difference between age 20 addicts uh, who are addicted to coke or something, and by age 28 or 30, the whole family is sick of them. It's just basically either get clean or get out of here. Susie? And it also shows that how children, being children, don't always have such a say in the family dynamics and what's happening that... Their kids, you know, they, they go along with it. They have to deal with it. And it's just, it was just very, very sad to see um, because they don't have the same voice as adults and saying, we're sick of this, get out of here. And they, the kids all react differently. Last night uh, on that intervention show, there were three kids, and they reacted much differently. Some kids are less affected. Some are more resilient. I agree with that, but you don't always know how resilient a a kid is until they're adults because a lot of this doesn't creep back up until they are adults. Right, and and I was thinking of that during that show because the interventionist said, well, two of your kids are very resilient and one is not, but sometimes the kid who's apparently not doing as well does much better later on and the kids break down who have held up on the surface. Now, there's an interesting new study on chronic pain and memory. We've seen over the years people with severe headaches seem to have worse memories, at least short-term memory. And in this study, 
People who suffer from chronic pain may find their memory taxed by everyday multitasking. Uh, this was a relatively small study of 24 people, but the findings in it suggest that chronic bodily pain can drain the resources available for mental multitasking. In other words, it's easy to get overwhelmed by just daily hassles, the usual daily things that people face, and to have on the surface at least a poor short-term memory in people with chronic pain. I think it's not just the pain that comes into it. People with chronic pain sometimes are anxious, sometimes very often are depressed, uh, partly because of the pain, and also the medicines that people take can affect memory. Now the study concludes that the hope is to eventually help chronic pain patients recognize when their thinking function is being affected and offer them ways to overcome the disruptions. And I think that's important to point out to people in pain that they may not be, it, it validates that they're not thinking as well, their memory isn't quite as well, and there are ways to get around poor memory as far as little tricks, writing things down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think the electronic PDAs have helped. Susie? You know, somebody gave me a tip a few years ago, and hey, we all need tips on on uh, our short-term memory. But for me, and I don't do it all the time, but I try to do it, is to be more thoughtful during the day in terms of things that you want to remember later. Who hasn't lost their car keys? Put them down some part of their house and then couldn't remember where they put them or their eyeglasses. So when I'm putting down something that I typically need to pick up during the course of the day, I put it down and I mentally say to myself, all right, I'm putting my eyeglasses down here on the kitchen counter next to the phone. So later on, if I'm looking for them, I can recall it a little bit better because I've stopped what I was doing when I was putting them down and told myself, now remember, this is where you're putting them. Yeah, I think that we probably all could use, or most of us could use slowing down anyways in our society. Now, you know, headache patients often tell me that they can tell the weather with their head. And I think it's true. A number of studies have shown that headaches are increased with the great winds like the Sharif, the Santa Ana, the Chinook winds that come in. And that's because when weather changes, it changes the chemistry of our brain and our bloodstream. We get definite changes in serotonin levels. Serotonin is a key compound in the brain and nervous system. And this new study looked at arthritis pain and the weather. People who swear they can predict the weather by the pain in their arthritic knees may be right after all. In general, patients' pain flare-ups correlated with changes in temperature and barometric pressure. While many arthritis sufferers feel the weather affects their pain, some say their pain increases when it's cold or when it rains, for instance, scientific evidence of this has been hard to find previously. Overall, the research found that patients' pain tended to worsen when the temperature dropped or when the barometric pressure increased. Barometric pressure refers to the weight of surrounding air, and it changes with changes in altitude. It's less in higher altitudes, such as in the mountains of Colorado, and barometric pressure changes with weather. I've noticed with headache patients that people with headaches often can change a uh, uh, can uh, detect changes in weather uh, with their head. Some people don't do as well in bright sunshine. Usually it's the, the rainy days or as a rainstorm or fronts coming in.
they get their headaches. Susie, you had, um, I know your hand was broken or a wrist a number of years ago. Do you, does the weather affect it? Do you feel the weather? I feel it in the cold in the wintertime, and I bet a lot of people out there who've had a broken bone on an arm, leg, also feel it. Maybe because this bone that I broke in my hand, I actually broke the same bone twice, two years in a row. And I do feel it in the cold weather. Summers, it feels fine. You know, I think the old uh, saying that people, as they get older with more arthritis, do feel better in warmer weather or going down south, it, it probably is true to some extent. The problem with everybody going down south or snowbirds, if they can afford it, is that it takes them, rips them away from their families, and they become really disconnected and lonely. Now, one of the most common problems in the country is back pain, low back pain. It costs the country maybe $25 billion a year in lost work time, etc. And there was a new study looking at surgery versus non-surgery for back pain. And we've had studies on this. I think it's very complex. Who should get surgery? Who's going to do well? You know, I tell patients with low back pain that I'm seeing for their back pain regularly that if it all fits together, if they have pain and numbness down one leg, for instance, sciatica, we used to call it, and pain on that side in their low back, and an MRI or CAT scan, usually an MRI, that shows a big herniated disc to that side pushing out into the nerves, that everything fits. Say everything's to the right side. They have right-sided pain and numbness running down their leg, pain in their low back and right side of their low back, and a big herniated disc to the right side. It all fits. Surgery is very, very likely to help. But for many people, they just have arthritis, what we call degenerative changes. Um, Their discs are not as good as they used to be. They've lost fluid in the discs in between the bones, the what we call intervertebral discs that cushion everything. Surgery then is much more iffy when it's just for arthritis and what we call degenerative changes. So we're not as likely to jump into it. Now, this new study published in the New England Journal of Medicine is similar to other studies that we've seen where very often not surgerizing, not going through surgery works as well if you look at people over two years. But it gets more complicated than that. Many patients don't want to wait Uh, months and years for their pain and numbness to get better. And if people are getting weak in one leg, sometimes the weakness doesn't get better even if you do operate. So if somebody has a herniated disc to one side and they're getting weak, same in the neck, if they're getting weak in their arm or their hand, we don't want to wait too long to do surgery. Now, you know, reading between the lines in these surgery versus non-surgery studies for low back pain, it really comes down to what is going on in the low back. Uh, how can the doctor assess uh, as far as arthritis versus a herniated disc versus slippage of one bone over another? For slippage, uh, there's a fancy name called spondylolisthesis, slippage of one big vertebrae over another. Surgery is often necessary, and people often do well with surgery. But when people start talking about rods and steel in the low back and fusions, uh, very often we back off. It's a much bigger surgery, and we're a little worried about that. Many people are between a rock and a hard place. They have severe low back pain. They're in their 50s, 60s, 70s, but they don't want to go through the major huge surgery with rods and a fusion and uh, with a high failure rate. But 
their quality of life is greatly compromised by the back pain. It's a real problem. I think partly it comes down to we weren't meant to walk on all twos. We were probably meant evolutionarily to walk on all fours. Now, on another story, they've looked again at vaccines and autism. Autism, as we've mentioned on the show before, is really increasing. About one out of 150 kids in the United States fits the autism spectrum disorder, and it is a spectrum from mild, moderate, or severe. But they recently looked again at exposure to thimerosal, which is a mercury-containing chemical that was used in uh, as a preservative in uh, vaccines. It's not used anymore. And the conclusion of this study was that it did not exposure did not increase the risk of autism. I believe that other studies in the past have concluded this. There was one British study that uh, showed a link, but they actually rescinded. It was very rare and unusual. They rescinded that article uh, three years later. That was published in 1999. It was rescinded about uh, four years ago because apparently the lawyers that uh, sue the vaccine companies were behind the article, and there was a whole controversy about the results, whether they were true or not. But um, this is still up in the air. I think that probably vaccines have been put to rest as a cause for an increase in autism, and the federal courts in the United States recently have agreed to look at, uh, I believe there are 7,000 pending cases on this, but we still don't know why autism is increasing. We do know that there's not much of uh, effective treatments. There are uh, treatments that do help uh, medicines and a lot of non-medicine from sensory integration to a lot of physical and speech therapy, et cetera, et cetera. But we certainly don't have a cure. Suze? Well, it sure would be nice if um, there was more conclusive, conclusive evidence as to what is happening because... There are so many frustrated and angry families out there uh, who are giving birth to healthy ch- healthy babies who months later are unable to talk and acknowledge their parents and family. It's horrible. It's a real enigma with autism. Well, that wraps it up for this week. This is the Dr. Larry Robbins Show. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins with my co-host Susie Robbins. You can reach us at DocLarryRobbins at AOL.com or just go to HeadacheDrugs.com. That's HeadacheDrugs.com. See you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at HeadacheDrugs.com. And join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on The Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. TalkZone.com.